You know, I had a whole bunch of things that I wanted to talk about. Really? With you. Yeah, I had like a little list that's just come up. Okay. Not, not least of which that that you did you see on the Slack that I that we, I I had missed two emails or two two feedback things that came in on our contact form. I I had not seen that. No. Yeah, I added them. They came in in like June. Oh my gosh! So we'll have to go back. We'll have to do those at some point. Yeah, we can do. We could do that next week. We, we could, could do that next week. We could do. We that could next have week. you and yeah. me next week. I apologize. They came on our account. You know how much spam we get on that contact form. I don't bother showing you because mm. I don't put them on the yeah, Slack. It's that. just. It's just daily garbage. Really? It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. Let's um, do this so, in so, the after. Yeah. So people should call. Should, should, people should email oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. Okay. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. Okay. Speaking of talking to people, maybe we should get our guest. You think? At long last. At long last, let's get our guest on the horn. After this is, it's been several episodes with no guest, right? Is yeah. it? Oh, I think we got him. Hi, guys. Hey, hey, Charles. How are you doing, Charles? Good. How are you guys doing? Uh, good. You hear us okay? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay, you, sound, you sound great. I'm going to leave all this in. Oh, wait a minute. I'm hearing an echo. Yeah, an echo developed. Okay, n- now it's gone. Now it's gone. Okay. I'm going to leave all this in. <laughs> it's, what the, it's what people tune in for, dude. I don't know. You know, I, honestly, I don't know what people tune in for. I've given up trying to predict anything about anybody. They tune in for Charles, that's for sure. I can barely hear Joe. Oh, uh, okay. This, this is, can you hear him now? Joe, you got to talk, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear me? Uh, not really, but I can hear him. I can hear him. It's just quiet. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, you shouldn't be, though. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, why does nothing ever make any sense? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I'm going to invoke, as I do almost every episode, Louis C.K.'s invocation. Uh, this is all a miracle at all. Like, it's, it's amazing that any of this works at all. Yes, yeah, like the airplanes. Right. So just... Now I can hear you, by the way. Now, now I can hear you. Oh, good. We should be grateful that, that through the miracles of modern technology um, and notwithstanding new FCC chair Pi's efforts to absolutely destroy the internet. <laughs> oh we're able to engage with Charles in this way. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. So, you know, this is not as far afield a as it's going to sound because it actually, I think relates to some of the kind of epistemology we're going to talk about with Charles okay. in a minute. But, um, but I actually, I think I might disagree. You know, I, I think the Louis CK thing is funny okay. and I think it, it describes accurately like, yeah. uh, uh, the state of gratitude, but, but I think what is critical for humanity, the progress of humanity, mm. is fostering, you don't have to foster it, just unleashing a certain amount of reflexive disrespect. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, like, I'm just not, like, yeah, we should totally be satisfied. I'm, like, I'm holding my iPhone here right now, yes. right? And it is, comparing it just to the weight of the original iPhone and comparing the original iPhone to the, to the garbage that came before it, right? right? And the garbage that came before that and the nothingness that preceded that garbage, right? right. It's like... I should be really grateful, right? But it is super important that I have all kinds of complaints, right, about this thing, you know. And, and the <laughs> truth that's is, what helps make things better. N- no one has more complaints about this. I've got an iPhone 7 here. No one has more complaints about this object than the people at Apple do, which is why they've been what? successful. And in part because they know it best. They know it best, and they, but, they, but also they foster that attitude. Of, and this like, is what pushes us forward. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Exactly. Like, yeah. you know, so, so, you know someone's, instead of saying, boy, isn't it amazing that I can record all these TV shows on this, like, this little magnetic tape thing? It's, like, unprecedented. It used to be people couldn't even capture images of, of human beings other than through, like, drawings, no, what, right? Look, what you say And is, instead they say, this is garbage. What you say is totally true. Yeah. And I just, I'm here to lower expectations. 
you know, Joe Miller, lowering expectations since 1967. Like, I think this is, I think this is what I do. So, um, you know, you do you, I'll do me. And together somehow in the middle will be awesomeness. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, you know, who's in the middle of us right now? Charles. Charles Barson. Indeed. Yeah. For I, your second appearance on the program. Yeah. Great. Which, is, which is so great. And I saw, I have to say, I have to relate for listeners, you know, I saw uh, Charles's uh, paper uh, get got mentioned in Larry Solomon's blog. So it sort of rolls across my aggregator. And I, li- you know, thank goodness there was nothing in between me and my keyboard because I would have knocked it out of the way <laughs> as I'm t- busily typing the email to Charles, please come on our show because I've read the abstract and I know it's going to be totally awesome. Oh, I ho- yeah, I hope you didn't regret it after reading the whole thing. Not at all. I, was, I, I felt totally vindicated in my, my, wis- my wisdom and perspicacity. I was right <laughs> on the money. Talk about an article that contains a multitude. So, you know, it is. It it is. I, I'm just curious, though, before we get started. So we're going uh, to talk about this article that you wrote. We'll link it up in the show notes, as always. Yes. Uh, analyzing kind of Justice Souter's jurisprudence, but in a, in a, in a true, like legal philosophical way, like where does he sit alongside other legal philosophical traditions? And then how do those legal philosophical traditions arise from more general philosophical traditions, right? So they're kind of two layers of, of theory with this particular slice of, of sort of common law constitutionalism as reflected in some, uh, an interesting selection of opinions. Um, you know, I, what, what so um, it, it just sparked so much for me just reading the abstract because I, I knew and you d- you did in the paper, but I knew you would invoke some of the statements he made after leaving the court. Oh, yeah. I could tell that you were going to do that. And that 2009 um, little address on Plessy and Brown mm-hmm. at that humanities conference, which he later then amplifies in his address uh, at Harvard uh, the the following year, um, I found to be incredibly moving. And in, I know we've talked about it before. Yeah, and I've I've linked, mentioned I have it. linked it on the show notes we've before. We've linked it in the show notes. You had both seen that? Oh, I, I saw it only because Joe brought it up on the show, and so I included it in the show notes and so saw it through through that. I don't remember. Do you remember the episode that this came I up don't, in? but, but uh, you know, I've watched it. Maybe, I probably maybe it was, watched maybe it, was it my ten favorite, times. It hmm? may have been my favorite case episode because I picked Plessy because of the dissent in Plessy. Oh, and I, I might have mentioned it in, in it that context. Right. So, but but I watched it not long after it happened because I heard some chatter about it and um, and and I found it to be this uh, very arresting um, set of reflections not long at all but um, but it really kind of uh, uh, touched me and made me think and was very provocative and so ever since then uh, I when this pops up I have uh, it, it it definitely catches my attention and so I knew, uh, and also, it, Justice Souter is is someone who, in the different classes that I teach, uh, so for example, can we in, just can we just say he's the best? <laughs> well, I no, just, um, I, I love Justice Souter. I mean, I, I'm I think a he's true fantastic. Justice Souter fan. I think he's uh, I think he's amazing. He's incredible. Um, what were you going to say though about your about the cases that? You, oh, so so in in the IP survey, um, uh, he is 
the author of Campbell Against Ache of Rose, which is the third in three uh, opinions about fair use that the court decided. And fair use, although there is a statute uh, in the Copyright Act, there's a provision about fair use, but but it's largely become a, a sort of common law multi-factor thing. Mm-hmm. So he writes this very important opinion, sort of synthesizing some prior uh, Supreme Court opinions, modifying them a bit to explain why a uh, uh, parody is uh, very much within the tradition of fair use, um, goes back to this Justice Story opinion in a case called Folsom against Marsh, which was about adapting George Washington's papers, a multi-volume work, down into a condensed or abridged version um, and sort of takes Justice Story's factors, shows how they are instantiated in the current statute and then applies it to parody. So beautifully detailed, rich history. Um, Markman against Westview, which is a case I don't really teach much anymore, but it's an important case about the role of a jury in construing a patent and concludes the jury has no role. Um, uh, And then an antitrust, California Dental, which is this case about how to analyze uh, a Section 1 issue um, and this this doctrine that's come to be called the quick look doctrine. He held it didn't apply there. Uh, And so he and Justice Breyer, the sort of two Yankee jurists on the court, get into this interesting debate with each other about how to analyze a the 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 matter in California Dental. I just find him. Oh. Yeah, he's sort of fascinating, and his. Oh, that's that's interesting. Wait, so is he, is that one where he did? Does he disagree with Breyer in that one? They do disagree. Um, and and uh, so he concludes uh, in California Dental that uh, that the full rule of reason approach. Uh, fully explore all of the pro-competitive benefit, fully explore all the anti-competitive risk, uh, fully try to uh, determine with detailed information about the market and the effects of this restraint on the market, uh, whether this is net anti-competitive. Therefore, uh, this thing called the quick look, uh, which uh, he describes as being a situation where uh, even someone with a rudimentary understanding of economics would see that the restraint uh, in question is deeply problematic, deeply threatening to competition, uh, and therefore, unless the defendant comes up with a, pro, uh, a very convincing pro-competitive justification immediately, uh, it will be declared illegal. Right? Uh, Justice Breyer says, "Yeah, I think this was a quick look case, no problem." Right? And then spends several pages explaining why. Right? And so, one of the nice little quips Justice Souter uh, says in the majority is, "You know." Whatever else you can say about this, uh, Justice Breyer certainly didn't do a quick look. I mean, go read what he wrote. It's much longer than what everyone else has said. So come on. Uh, it's to be really, fair, Justice Breyer never does a quick look. Yeah. R- right. I mean, yeah, Justice Breyer's quick look is uh, is everyone else's, oh, my gosh, when will this end? You can make a Rodin out of Justice yeah, especially, quick especially look. Especially his questions. <laughs> Oi. Um, I love him. I love the questions. <laughs> <laughs> we debate this all the I time. I think I love them all the more for for uh, for your irritation. For how long I find, yeah. Um, I love but, them. But yeah. uh, and you know, so I went back this afternoon and I and I kind of listened to. Um, uh, I thought, oh, I want to listen to his announcement of Old Chief from the bench. Oh, and you can now listen to oh, these on Oye, right? This is an unprecedented level of preparation for this show. <laughs> <laughs> I never, it never occurred to me to. Do I would thing. encourage you, you to li- get that. Uh, yeah, you you can go on oye.org. And I'm, you, I'm going to link it up in the show notes. You can so. just listen to, because now they include not just the oral argument tape, but if there's tape of the announcement of the opinion from the bench, and sometimes there is, sometimes the hand, there's the not. The hand downs. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's very, in Old Chief, it's quite short. 
Um, but then I thought, ah, what did they do in Casey? Right. Oh, yeah. And so you might wonder, did they each one of the three read some? So make, maybe some, maybe you could figure out authorship from that. Is what you're well, thinking? Well, uh, but but what they 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 actually did each three each one of the three. It was a tag O'Connor, team. Kennedy and Souter read a part of what they wrote. Huh. Did Souter read the part that I ascribed to him? I hope. Yeah, it's the Starry Decisis part. Yeah, that's, okay. yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, has anyone done any scholarship using the hand down to establish? The, the authorship of the different parts of the opinion. Well, Charles, what you you talk about this some of this scholarship about the authorship of the of the per curiam or the excuse me, it's not per curiam, it's a, the multi signed opinion in Planned Parenthood against Casey. Did you see reference to that? That's right. I, there are two um, kind of you know what do you call them sort of court watching kind of books. Yeah, like Jeff Tubin's book or Jeff Tubin's, and then there's another one, and I don't know if one is based on the other, but both of them say. Both of them say that he wrote that part. Uh, well, the hand down on the day makes it just as clear as it could be. Oh, great. I should include that. Thank you. Sure. I'm going to take notes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it's just interesting to hear. I like listening to those hand downs now because they're kind of compressed versions of the opinion in the case. So we you we get talked a sense with Dahlia what, about the hand down in Obergefell, right? And... Didn't, wasn't it that one that we talked about? Because she was, I can't remember if we talked about it on the show or at another time with her, but um, did have you gone back and listened to that? Um, I, I've no, not listened to any No, of I remember downs. her yeah. talking about it at the time just because the chief, his comments seemed kind of emotionally charged uh, in person in a way that they might not come across on the page. That's my recollection of what she said about it. Yeah, I and mean, it was also, the, the thing that you won't get on Oye is the is the drama in the room necessarily well, because sure. a lot of what she described was the reaction of the people in the gallery. So right. there's kind of a, a performer audience relationship that you don't get except by being there. Um, but, but to yeah. hear, to hear someone give a condensed version of their view uh, is, is just a different insight into the opinion. And therefore mm-hmm. I think really interesting, even in a run of the mill case. Uh, yeah. So, Anyway, so did you I, listen to the old one and the suitor talk about the, the famous paragraph? Do you know um, if he includes that? I, I did listen to it. It was about a minute and a half. So it was, no, so probably not. So it was very brief. Um, and I don't recall him making uh, reference to that, uh, to, to the, the paragraph about, uh, you know, the, sto- the kind of storytelling that mm-hmm. people need to be able to engage in, which is so interesting because, they, of course, they don't permit it in that very case. Right, exactly. Well, that's what I was say. It's, it's dicta. It's going. It cuts the other direction of the holding. So yeah, yeah I'm not surprised. I was just going to break. I was just going to break in, and so my inclination was to start this conversation talking about the two philosophers, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, let's know, do from, that. from the bottom, but but now I'm wondering, may, maybe we should talk about Old Chief and and why why it's a controversial opinion, and maybe that will point the way. Um, would, would that be an okay place? Because a lot we're, sure. we're throwing this around, yeah. but a lot of people are like, "What is Old Chief?" And, and I knew Old Chief because I, I, I taught <laughs> evidence a few times, so I knew that case as well. Oh, I knew it too. I mean, yeah. everyone. I, I assume that everybody who takes evidence in law school reads Old Chief or has heard of it, but maybe well, not. Now. Maybe yeah, maybe. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, I took evidence before that case was decided. So. Oh, I forgot that you were so old. Yeah, I'm, I'm crusty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Charles, what is Old Chief? Oh, gosh. Uh, Old Chief is a decision. Uh, it was a 5-4 decision, 1990, I can't remember, uh, where they, it's a question about whether uh, the, a prior conviction 
can come in as evidence. And in particular, the issue is whether the defendant can stipulate that he committed a felon. Because so it was, it was, you know, his crime was, was I think, possession of having a gun while being a, a, a convicted felon. And so he wanted to just stipulate that, yes, he was a felon. So that element of the crime was met. Because you would think as an element of reason, right, you would think just that, you know, that the, the prosecutor's job is to establish A, you know, just go through the elements, A, this guy's a felon, B, he possessed a firearm. And right. so what evidence do you need to establish that? Well, if he just concedes, hey, I'm a felon, then that element's been established. So so why do you need to go, you know, so the government says that's not enough. We want to we want to talk about the crime. We want to talk about, you know, what he was convicted of. Uh, and, and, and you would think at the very least we want to name it, but so there's this rule of evidence 403, which says that, you know, uh, uh, even if evidence is relevant, the judge may exclude it if it's unfair, the risk of unfair prejudice outweighs its probativeness. And, and that was the issue here, right, Charles? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So the question, I think the technical question was whether it was an abuse of discretion, not to exclude it, uh, um, not to, um, you know, allow the the defendant to stipulate, uh, which the night I think even the Ninth Circuit did not. The Ninth Circuit decided with the prosecutor, uh, or, or you know, favor the prosecutor, huh. and then and so as you say, the the court ends up saying that this was that they should have allowed old chief to stipulate because it was kind of unconnected to the original crime. Uh, it was a, it was an assault conviction, by the way, and I think the next one was also something like that. Both were violent. Um, and he says, but despite holding for old chief along the way, what 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 gets it into the evidence case books is that Souter writes writing for the court says, well, as a general matter, this idea that the prosecutor is is advancing that he should be able to prove his what's the exact language something like, you know, prove his own case, or something like that is generally true, and the reason it's true is because. And the, the famous line is, a syllogism is not a story. And that basically it's it's up, it's part of our, and you know, I'm sort of, you know, filling in here, but it's basically that I, part of our adversarial process is the ability to convince a jury through a kind of narrative account, uh, through the, the power of the particular, he says, that the defendant is guilty. And and that's important, that, that sort of normative uh and the normative momentum that can come from narrative momentum is important to a jury in the sense that we're asking them to do more than turn the crank on the side of some old mechanical calculator. Well, that's the question. Here. We're that's, asking them yeah. to make a judgment, sit in judgment of a fellow citizen, uh, of a fellow person, and say, you know, are, should you be held – are you culpable in the way that the state says you're culpable for this bad act? Uh, and, and asking people to do that, knowing what we know about how human beings feel about one another, like it, it's it's not going to it can it can be the case that um, the to, to ask them to sit in judgment in that way and, and just give them a list of dry abstractions isn't really adequate to the task of sitting in judgment on one another that we, it, something deeper is going on here. Uh, and the, and he really comes out and says that, which is an interesting mm-hmm. thing to come out and say. Absolutely. And Christian's sort of looking up into the air and it's making me think he thinks, okay, so Christian, well, what is no, your... Well, I mean, you just have to separate how a recognition of how people do judge right. from how you want them to judge. And yes. Suter's, you know, has I, part of what this is saying, like part of what this passage refers to is that the fact that people do, in fact, make a 
moral judgment when they decide to convict or to acquit, right? Uh, and and it's it, maybe it's not an all things considered moral judgment. You know, you can say that it's guided by instructions and other things, but but that nonetheless it is it is not the element by element analytical application. And this is a nod to that. And in fact, 403 itself, the, the rule of evidence here is a nod to that fact, right? right. But then there's right. this other thing, you know, th- then you would go further and say, okay, given that that's how people do judge, you know, one way of looking at the rules of evidence is they are basically at war with that mm-hmm. emotional aspect. And, and instead, they are trying to turn jurors into kind of uh, robot analysts of, of facts and, and elements. And Souter here, is, and th- this is what I think is controversial about it, right? Yes. He's saying, no, that in fact, you do want that kind of emotional or moral intuition to play a role, even if it's not a broad ranging. But nonetheless, 403 serves the purpose of reining it in when it when it might be too right. all encompassing or too over, over you know, I'm and you could say, but, you know. I mean, you, you, yes, you could maintain that the rules of evidence are, are in some sense uh, at war with the presence of the jury. I, I think that goes way too far. Um, I think it, it is it makes sense to say that they try to channel. Uh, jurors away from some of the sloppiest ways of thinking that would undermine the effort to to be accurate, uh, but that to be accurate or to be fair. You see, once well, you use it, the word to, of accuracy, you're in this. In, you know, go ahead. Yeah, to be accurate in a context where you're also trying to be fair. I mean, right. to to be accurate about a thing that is a human thing, not a you know, not a uh, a formula. That that, that right. You, so you have to do you have to you have to try to channel the jury, not but but they're there right and they're there to do something that is potentially in the at least in the Anglo American criminal law tradition which is old chief's a criminal case um, they're there to do important things about making sense of a disputed heap of factual material using their common experience yeah and that's something that's actually useful for actual human beings. Well, this do. is what the debate is, right? The, the debate is, you know, one, how do people come to know things? Like just, just as a general philosophical, how do we come to know things on the one side factual and the other side moral? And are those in fact two sides or they, or is it the same <laughs> right. process of in knowing, one big pot, right? right. And, and that's what we're going to get to here. And then there's this like, again, like how, you know, in this particular context of human behavior, the, the jury, how should they come to know? And, and is it even possible to kind of change the manner of knowing like you know is is, is the right. are the rules of evidence channeling procedures or are they just boundaries or you know what yeah and just know. to put my priors yeah. uh, not priors but my sort of my blinders maybe or whatever on the your table beliefs, your your um, intu- your moral intuitions well my, i i so when um i was a law student at northwestern university and so i took evidence from ron allen who's actually ah. mentioned by charles in this paper yeah, yeah. and this sort of and i think ron thinks of old chief as highly congenial to an accurate understanding of the way fact finding goes on in an adversary trial process uh i have the same understanding of it i guess that's not that's surprising because I learned evidence from Ron Allen. Um, moreover, um, you know, Ron and I wrote a piece. I was a research assistant for him as well. And so we, we wound up writing a piece that is p- part of the – you can put in the overall panoply of his stuff about the nature of juridical fact-finding. Uh, and, and so that relative plausibility approach – uh, which is ultimately rooted in part in this work by this guy named Peter Lipton, em- inference to the best explanation. Um, uh, th- that that of course, jur- it makes sense to say jurors have uh, have to rely on the parties to give them a narrative 
to understand not just a list of factual propositions to compute, right? Um, and, and so that's what makes Old Chief a hard case, precisely because you can understand the merit in the prosecutor's point. I should be able to get to prove that he was a felon in the way I want to prove it, not in the way he wants me to prove it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's my opponent <laughs> who has a very different perspective on the right outcome here. Um, uh, and nevertheless, the court concludes, even in the face of what Souter describes as that v- valid point of view, yes, there is a narrative here to vindicate, not just a, a formula to compute. Um, th- it, this, in this case, too, too prejudicial. Fascinating. So how does this relate, Charles, to the to the basic philosophical debate between White and Quine? Well, because what I think, I think I see it, what I try to interpret Old Chief as is an example of of what what Souter and what White calls holistic pragmatism. And what's holistic about it is that it involves the sort of reasoning that Joe was just describing of a kind of inference to the best explanation, but one that combines um, both the factual and the moral realm. So that's what I think the the Allen relative plausibility and other people have talked about narrative in the context of Old Chief. I think, and maybe this isn't fair because I don't know the I don't know the literature maybe well enough. But but to me, it's often about just this question about how do people best reason to particular factual conclusions, and do they reason step by step analytically or do they reason holistically? And if they reason holistically, they're subject to various. Um, uh, fallacies and so forth. What I think is critical about understanding Old Chief is just what you guys were just getting at, which is that he views it as you know uh, as as effectively a moral judgment, a judgment, uh, uh, you know, a, a practical decision, not a theoretical decision. It's a just just decision about whether this person should go to jail for some period of time. In theory, that's that's not the way our system does it, right? In theory, it's supposed to be you know the the people through their legislatures make the moral judgment about what we think of certain kinds of crimes. And then all the jury is to do is just decide whether in fact this person did that thing or not. And so in a sense, the moral judgment belongs to someone else, not the jury. But insofar as we think that jury nullification is something that uh, is sometimes justified because we think juries are kind of the conscience of the community, uh, insofar as we think something like that is okay, then I think that's a kind of serves as a kind of justification for what the sort of reasoning uh, 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 Souter is getting at, because it's a reasoning that makes judgment and, and jury nullification. It's not it's not exactly the the same point of holistic pragmatism. It's kind of an analogy, and it's even one that White himself uses. But it's basically something like reasoning from the moral conclusion about what will happen to this person if you reach a certain um, factual conclusion to backwards as a reason to doubt those conclusions, right? As the fact that he will go to prison is a reason to not conclude that he, you know, punched the guy in the face or held, had the gun or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's, it's like, um, you know, if you're, imagine you're on the jury and you, you receive evidence from the prosecutor, which is that you just receive the stipulation stipulated. This guy has a prior, uh, conviction for which he served more than a year in prison, uh, or was sentenced to more than a year in prison. And, and here's some evidence about the fact that he possessed a gun. And we're asking you to say that he's guilty of this crime. I don't know what the name of the crime is. It's a uh, felon, felon in possession, possession or yeah. something like that. And yeah. and you may be thinking, boy, this looks serious. This is a serious courtroom situation. And they're putting a lot of energy into this. I, of course, I don't know what the sentence is as a juror. It's a different debate. So I don't know. That's right. What yeah, the, that's what, right. 
don't Sorry. know what the effect of what I'm going to do is, but but boy, before I say he's guilty, I, I, I just want to feel good about what I'm doing. And I guess the evidence suggests that he did, in fact, possess a gun. But I, I'm just not, you know, uh, maybe I could say that there's some doubt about that. Maybe it could be someone else's gun. And given that it just doesn't seem so serious, maybe I'm inclined toward toward acquittal, or at least I want some some better evidence here. But if I have more evidence about what he was convicted of, you know, that this guy, you know, I basically infer that he had a violent past. And suddenly the very idea of a law that says people like that shouldn't have guns, like suddenly I'm in line with that law. That's my law, right? right? Instead of something that I'm just being instructed about. And I, and so I'm kind of an agent in carrying out that law in a way that I wasn't when I didn't see the sense of it precisely because I wasn't confronted with the, with the basic moral conclusion, you know, or the, you know, the the facts that would feed into that. Um, is, Is that, is that kind of the, the thinking that you're yeah yeah that's right I mean one way another way of putting it is just to to make it seem more seem plausible I think is if we think that and this is obviously controversial in itself but if we think when making practical decisions in our lives about what we should do which include kind of both prudential judgments and and moral ones um, that we should you know that it's relevant it's it's an appropriate way of, of of reasoning to think about what our kind of gut tells us right what our intuitions are about what seems fair what seems appropriate that kind of emotional uh, 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 consideration, if we think that's true when, in deciding sort of moral, moral judgments, then, uh, and we think that certain kinds of um, characterizations or stories or um, uh, descriptions kind of inform those reactions, then you think that it might be that kind of, um, uh, that, that kind of, uh, that kind of description and narrative, et cetera, will be appropriate to um, to, to that context to a to a jury dis, dis, uh, a jury decision. If you understand the jury decision as effect, effectively a moral one, well, you relate a great kind of another example of this, which uh, which is I think due to white and and it really kind of struck struck home with me. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. let me just lay this out, uh, um, and if you don't mind, um, yeah, yeah. You, you give uh, three premises that you know people could agree with or disagree with. So the first one, killing human beings is always wrong. And a lot of people would say, yeah, that's, that's a principle with which I uh, agree. And I'll take that as a premise. Uh, principle number two or, or premise number two is every live fetus is a human being. And you can imagine a lot of people going on with, going along with that as a, as a mm-hmm. premise or, uh, or, or as, as a principle. And, and, uh, and premise number three, Mary killed her fetus when she had an abortion. And that seems like a factual premise, right? That, um, mm, right. And, and then the conclusion, therefore, what Mary did was wrong. And you can imagine being confronted with actual facts about Mary. Um, you know, m- maybe Mary was, was raped. Maybe Mary's health was in danger. You know, any kind of specific factual situation. And you have these three premises in your mind. And all of a sudden, you are faced with a conclusion that would follow. You're, you kind of revolt and you say, wait a minute, this, this wasn't wrong here. And so the the way that you revise your moral principles is to be confronted with the with the moral conclusions that they imply after interaction with specific facts. Yep. And that's, so that's the process that White imagines, right? That we have a moral right. intuition to that, so. So he yeah. wants to say that's that's rational. That that it's and and specifically that it's rational to to reevaluate either of the first two premises. Sorry, did you say rational or irrational, Joe? Rational. Rational. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it would be reasonable um, right. to to look at either one of the two premises. Killing uh, people is always wrong, 
uh, every fetus is a person. Did I get those two right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that that you could reevaluate any uh, either of those in the context of, and and the second one sounds a bit more like a fact than the first one does. I think. Uh, I mean, it, it because it seems like it's a, some sort of biological classification. It, right? has, it has factual but, language, but it may not be because the, well, precisely because, because human being and like there's a hidden moral like definitional uh, premise in there. Yeah, yeah, but that's part of the point, yeah. right? That's part of White's point is that all our language is saturated by meaning and value, and especially once you bring once you bring that insight back to. Uh, the the fact that you could look at one or two and say, okay, I could reevaluate either of these premises. The you know one might look more factual than it used to look. Two might look more sort of moral than it used to look. But but either way, right or however you categorize them, the the fact is, if you look at either one of them differently now, by virtue of your strong intuitive reaction, wait, when I heard the individual circumstances of this case, it seemed like she had not done anything wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that then. You, you you sort of realize, okay, there's a lot up for grabs here as I reflect on what insight I should draw once I pause and consider, okay, what what should I, what's the what's the result of the force of my intuition? I think and the key the key here, I think, and I could be wrong, uh, but the key here I think is that what this is not doing is it's not as though the fact is revealing a hidden inconsistency in your moral theory that was there all along. And so the fact is basically urging is is forcing you to kind of reequilibrate your your kind of web of 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 moral beliefs, right? Rather, it's it's changing them, right? In a, it, it's you never had a um, what's the right way of saying this? So it's not as though I have a a, co- a, a, a what I think is a coherent web of moral beliefs, right? And then right. I see a new fact which reveals the fact that they were incoherent. That's and right. then I go through the process of kind of working them free again by doing another, you know, by doing another round of interpretation or reflective equilibrium, however you want to say it, right? Uh, rather, like the my moral intuition makes me think I had gotten it wrong in the first place, not that I was inconsistent and I need to relieve the inconsistency. I I think that's a key point that you're making that that White yeah, makes. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I think. The way I would put it, and I don't think it's inconsistent with what you just said, is that it's it's that one's moral reactions to the particular facts can lead one to revise. It's about kind of what's revisable in light of new experience, and it's and so it can lead one to revise even a factual judgment. What I'm trying to yeah, what I'm just trying to get out here is that um, is that you know when Dwar- when Dworkin talks about people trying to approximate Hercules, right? Hercules is the person right. who sees the whole who sees all of the laws and all of the principles that, that uh, give rise to those laws and is, is yeah. able perfectly to, to, to take a new dispute and, and work through the proper interpretation of our entire legal and moral history and come to a good result. But he recognizes that, in fact, we are all like just imperfect approximations of Hercules, right? And so uh, an imperfect Hercules may get a new case and come to recognize uh, oh boy, this doesn't seem to fit at least the the kind of the the puzzle of the the the, um, the kind of the, the web of of moral principles I thought we had. I need to rethink that, right? And and what I get is a better, hopefully, a better approximation of what the right set of principles is. Whereas I think this is saying that, that there just is no perfect Hercules, right? And in fact, we have yeah. all of these beliefs, and what happens is you you 
you just change your moral beliefs in response to a moral intuition, right, that comes from a conclusion. That seems to me really, like, it seems to me to be really different. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Well, I, the way, again, I'm not, I'm not sure either. I'm not following you or, or I agree with you. It's just a different way of saying <laughs> what, what I think you're saying, which is that the way, I mean, the way I try to frame it in the paper is that, that Dworkin is more, what Dworkin has more confidence is, in a, is our moral principles, our general moral principles. So he, he thinks we sort of reason from those two conclusions and that, yes, our judgments in particular cases, there is a kind of reflective equilibrium going on there, sort of adjusted. But he has more confidence than, than, um, than uh, the way I would put it is he has more confidence than Souter does in the kind of guiding power of, of, of principles as general statements, as well, and general it, principles. And it may be a caricature, but, but my sense of because I had never really focused on this aspect of Dworkin before, that that he, for him, the moral principles, in a way, exist outside of time. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. And question. that's very important, because if they really do exist outside of time, then this the example you gave Christian that you focused on from that from White's work about reevaluating either of the premises in response to the new situation and the moral intuition that that situation precipitates in you as an onlooker, right? If you really could reevaluate either of those premises, then then the principles do not exist outside of time. They exist in time. And you reevaluate them as you have experiences. So it turns out history and when you ask the question and what other experiences you have been having and the order in which you have them, for example, makes a tremendous difference. I'm not sure that he says that. I'm not sure that he thinks that principles um, uh, ha- have no. I, I guess I would say that that although he may think that there are overall principles that they that they can have contextual application, right? And they can have and the difference between a principle with a contextual with contextual application and a principle that morphs in in time or in context seems to me to be really. Tenuous, like there's not really a distinction analytically between those things, but you know the to me what I thought was captured here, like the suitor style juror, suitor slash white style mm-hmm. understanding versus the um, uh, you know um, Dworkin Quine approach, right? Is has mm-hmm. to do with the with with what that you know how that set of principles in our heads change, right? Uh, changes and then. Um, and then the 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 what what a conclusion means, right? So I I don't see um, either Souter or White from the description here as denying that when we face a circumstance or make a decision, we do apply some principles that we think that we have. That, that's right. I think right. that's right. Um, so so but the, the the difference is like what happens when we reach a conclusion, and I think White says that conclusion can be revolting to us, yeah, and cause us to realize that we'd gotten it. That's wrong, right. right? That or that we want to we want to be a different way. That's yeah. right. We, what what what? Uh, oh, I forget. Now I'm forgetting the word that um, a, a recalcitrant experience that comes from Quine originally, I think. But yeah, he has some kind of experience that we can't incorporate into our um, into our you know set of principles or beliefs, and so we revise those beliefs to accommodate it. And so, do you want to say like how does this so so if that's if if that's basically Quine, uh, um, uh, white right as opposed to Quine right then. How does this cash out for Souter? And, and I don't know if you want to locate him between like Dworkin and Posner, because um, that's really the heart of the paper, right, is, 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 is saying, hey, the, you know, Justice Souter 
didn't just have like an idiosyncratic, you know, um, common law, you know, pragmatic style. And he just like, he was a pragmatist like Posner, but just disagreed around the edges or disagreed maybe even majorly on some issues, but, but in the way that pragmatists might, because they have different ends, he had a, a substantively distinct theory of, of, of legal interpretation and, and, um, and legal analysis. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's, what's really new here, right? You're saying there's a, this is a, a, a new legal theory, which is a big, which is a big claim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it. Well, thank you. I, 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 <laughs> <it's a big laughs> I almost, it's funny. I almost entitled the, um, I a horrible title for this paper and the people at the Virginia Law Review, I, I asked them if they could come up with a better title and they came up with this one, which I thought was great. Um, but at one point my title when I was searching out was just to be, just to say three models of common law reasoning or something like that. Um, because I, in a way I did want to, I, I sort of felt like the contribution is in a way to lay out these different these different ones. In a in a way, I'm as interested in the other two mm. as I am in suitors. So let me let me try to describe what I take the differences to be. If we go back to Quine, he, the, one his his one of his contributions was to say that there's there's less of a difference between kind of facts on the one hand uh, and what what used to scare uh, philosophers in mid century metaphysics. Right, uh, pure abstractions about whether God exists or whether certain things exist that they thought was sort of those debates were too, dis- too disconnected from experience. Quine says, well, it's not so easy. All our kind of judgments, all our categories are kind of mixed in with our experience of what we perceive. It's kind of the theory ladenness of our of observation. Okay, so this is sort of a distinction that um, uh, th- this gets to a kind of holism about our sensory experience that we can't disconnect our theories from our facts. So that's sort of step one. Um, then what he wants to say though is that that's about he very much sticks with sensory perception. So he thinks that um, uh, that, he, uh, that that science still gives us the best kind of knowledge that we can use for practical purposes. Right? We can use it for. Uh, to achieve various goals, to predict things and control our environment. What I want to suggest is that two very different views can come out of this. On the one hand, you, you, that makes you sort of distrust uh, values and goals, which he views as sort of just emotional. Um, and so you are a pr- kind of a practical instrumentalist. You, you, we pick a certain goal. Um, we can't argue about that, but we can reason effectively about how to achieve it. Uh, this is what is sometimes called instrumentalism. It's the basic model of reasoning behind economics and various other things. The flip side, so and that's so that's the one I ascribed to Posner. And, and so this is the view that that means are underwritten by sensory exactly. experience, but exactly. goals are not underwritten by anything, and so can't exactly. really be reasoned about or argued about. Exactly. And the other way philosophers talk about this is uh, is, is the belief. It's a belief desire understanding of reasoning. We have certain desires, and then we have about which are ends, and then we have certain beliefs about facts, which are the means to achieve those ends. And we can be rational about that. Certain ways of, of achieving certain goals are more effective than other ones, and that's a factual scientific question about kind of causation and counterfactuals and things like that. You, you said there were two choices, right? So he's, he's yeah. saying experience, the, the analytic synthetic distinction is sort of not one we can actually maintain. Uh, right. So... Uh, I want to rely on experience. And you said, then he's got two choices. Can you do that step again? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So so then, yeah, sorry. So, and I've only gone down one choice. Exactly. So, so one view is you say, we, we, we maintain that the, the, the best source of our knowledge though, or the best source of 
reasoning is our senses, our observations. So that's the kind of the traditional empiricist scientific view. Uh, things about what we ought to do that you can't observe that. So that's sort of we, we're not we're not going to talk about that. Right. That's sort of outside the realm of, of of rational scientific discourse. Okay, so at that moment, in the sen- in a sense, Quine, you can put Quine with the pragmatists in as much as he wants to focus on the important part of our life is going to come from our experiences. Exactly, but okay. with a narrow definition of experience. I want to ah, say, okay, Sen- is, sensory experience. Experience is sensory experience. Right. Got it. Okay, so the, so then so we so we can reason about sensory experience. We can reason about means. Uh, and we can be instrumental, we can achieve certain goals. Um, and this is a little bit what Posner says. Now, I, I should pause here, especially now, we'll, we may be hearing more from Posner, right? And that now that he's retired. Yeah, we're uh, going to be hearing a lot more, I think. I think what I, what I call Posner, and I have a footnote about this, is a, is kind of one version of Posner. He's written, obviously, a lot. And I think he's a really interesting person. And I think some of what he's written is not consistent with the view I ascribe to him. And in fact, I even sort of mentioned this. But so this is, you know, this is sort of Posner with a little footnote of one version of. Right. Uh, is a kind of uh, a straightforward instrumentalist. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, so so we're we're putting across, we're putting aside values as kind of emotions, not important, not sort of outside the realm of science and and rationality. What what Quine at one point says though is that morality, he says, part of the reason it's outside science and rationality is because its own it has a whole we have a whole vocabulary about morality, but it has no touch with actual experience. For just this reason, you can't see, feel, and touch it, right? So its only form of justification is kind of internal and about its own internal coherence. Now, for Quine, that's a, a condemnation in a sense, right? That that sort of puts him off to the side as not something that he's concerned with. What's interesting about Dworkin is that Dworkin says the same thing. It's just that he thinks that the, what he calls the independence of value, he completely agrees. The only way to buttress a moral argument is by other moral arguments. Value is an independent domain that cannot be undermined or challenged in any way by kind of factual findings. So, for instance, a big issue in metaethics is, um, is, is what they call you know, evolutionary debunking arguments. By showing that our certain moral intuitions are really the result of kind of brain processes that developed, you know, I don't know how many, what the relevant number, how many years ago it is, right? Hundreds of thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, I don't know. But because we lived in small groups and we had to develop certain kinds of ways of interacting with each other, we don't live in that society anymore. And those are just these kind of instinctual reactions that kind of undermines our moral intuitions. And Dworkin has spends a lot of energy in Justice for Hedgehog saying why he thinks those arguments are completely beside the point and kind of impotent against moral claims. And this is another way in which he's taking it out of time. Yeah, I mean, he would sort of object to that, I think, characterization, but I know exactly what you mean. I mean, mm-hmm. the meta ethics are incredibly controversial and in a way hard to understand. He, he wants to just kind of completely shut off that. But he, the reason why he wouldn't say out of time exactly is because he, he denies that it's a metaphysical claim, right? He he's objects strongly to the idea that principles are something that are kind of out there and that exist in some way. He thinks that's the whole wrong way of thinking about it. All morality is are our judgments about what we ought to do. And we all live and we have to act. And so we all make these judgments. And so we can argue about these judgments with each other in moral terms. Yeah, the way I've always thought about it is that we have, you know, in, there's sensory experience on the one side, but there's moral experience. Mm-hmm. The um, Actually, the way that we 
typically argue with respect to the physical world and our in our sense of it is through kind of um, sens- sensory experience type arguments, right? Like the coordination of, of what we've sensed and experienced and, and that kind of cashes out sometimes in, in something that looks more like logic, um, uh, but, but, a, but a physical logic. And, and, and Dworkin seems to me to say that what underwrites a moral claim is kind of a coordination of moral experience, right? And, and ultimately that's about coherence, a coherence of a moral system that you coordinate with someone else. Yes. Well, I would I would push back a little bit on that because part of the distinction that I'm trying to emphasize is that certainly the coherence is an important part of of Dworkin. He what he he calls it value holism. The, 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 it's both a sort of necessary and sufficient justification for for one of your moral conclusions that it coheres with the rest of your moral conclusions. It has it has to be that, and that's the only kind of justification you could have. Crucially, though, he doesn't want to use the word experience. Because he he doesn't want to say that it depends. I mean, this is what's interesting about it. He doesn't want to say that the way we arrived at our moral judgments bears on its justification. Right. The difference between experience, uh, the difference between explaining and justifying. It's interesting, though, when you think about the chain novel example, we talked about this on the show before, right? That the, you know, the way that he talks about um, Hercules making a uh, Hercules is making a judgment about law is an, an uh, analogized to the the author who's charged with writing chapter six of a Christmas Carol after someone else has written chapters one through five or a series of other people have written chapters one through five right mm-hmm. and and the right you know the, the best chapter six is the one that that fits with the other chapters and and That's best right. justifies the theme as a whole and so so he's saying that inevitably that what to do depends on making an interpretation of what is there right and mm-hmm. in a way you know so to say, you could use the term moral experience there it would be like literary experience right the experience of encountering those first five chapters it is not a it is not a what, what's the right word here synchronic but it is not a like temporally cause and effect type mm-hmm. experience that we would associate with sen- sensory experience. Nonetheless, it is it is an immersion in a type of world hab- inhabited yep. by other humans, right? And that seems to me, yep. that that's what I would mean by experience in that context. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, ra- yep. you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Well, no, that's right. Okay, so that makes sense. I think that's right. And I think that's a, what you, it's plausibly described as experience. The, the point I, the, that what I want to emphasize, though, is what, 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 what Dworkin is concerned to say is that you can't undermine a moral argument by showing that there was a defect in the way in which you came to believe what you believe. Ah, uh, yeah. In the way that you could say with science, you can undermine a scientific conclusion by saying, oh, you know what? You actually did the experiment wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right? So what you observed was, was incorrect or was distorted by something. And what he wants to say is, if you want to go, if you want to say, oh, the only reason you think that is because you were raised by you know, fascist parents and you were, and you were, you know, distorted by, you know, you were, you were trained in some kind of inappropriate way. He wants to say none of that is relevant insofar, any argument that like that, that is relevant is only relevant insofar as it's making substantive moral claims. You can't undermine a person's moral position by explaining away how they came to that conclusion because it's in their genes, because they're a product of evolution or because they had a certain kind of upbringing or because or whatever it is. And when you're judging the moral claim, again, you're using a kind of coherentism where you evaluate it in conjunction with all of the other claims of which it is a part. But you, you, you right? You, I mean, you there's can, a web of yeah, claims, right. And they all bear on one another. That so that I, you can't evaluate any one of them in isolation from all the others. But but he does. I mean, he does. I think 
suggests that you, you, you can claim that someone else has failed to take, an, to take account of an important value within the community, one which is important yep. to fairness and justice, oh, for oh, example, sure. in the same way that you could yeah. say, you know, yeah. you, were, you wrote chapter six, but you actually ignored chapter four. You, 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 maybe you didn't even know it existed, but here right. it is. And now that and it's that there. And that is not at all an effort to explain why the person skipped chapter four. Right. Which right. is, I think, the stuff Charles was just talking yeah, about. That's right, Rather, that's it's to say, saying. yeah, the fit, the fit. It's just uh, that you is, did. It's just poor. that you did. Yeah. yeah, what you did is a poor job uh, on the fit and justification criteria. That's right. No, no. So shift us to so. So Quine says that that moral stuff not particularly interesting. Um, uh, Dworkin says not particularly interesting. It's the end all and the be all. Um, although right. he agrees with Quine that it is sort of, it, it doesn't touch universe. on the experience. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, and That's white right. and white seems to be doing yet something else entirely. Exactly. So, so that the way I try to frame it is, so you have on the one hand, you have, you have, you have Quine, even though not, not, not drawing a metaphysical distinction between fact and value exactly, but a kind of practical one about separating out the kind of stuff we can be rational about, sensory experience, and then all these value stuff, which are only have coherence as a kind of form of justification, which is a weak kind of justification. You have Posner latching onto the first one saying, okay, yeah, that's why we should really be as sort of fact intensive as we can be. Really, all we can reason about is facts. We should look to the social sciences. You then have Dworkin say, no, coherence is a perfectly plausible form of justification in the realm of value. And it completely insulated from the realm of fact and explanation. I don't have to, we don't have to deal with that. So what I try to show is that those are sort of two sides of the same coin. What White does is he rejects that split. And he says it's all, it's holism across everything, facts and values. And that brings us back to the abortion case. We can revise our factual judgment in light of our moral judgments. We can revise our moral judgments in light of our factual judgments. It's all of a piece. Which again, it relies on kind of the legitimacy of these kinds of quick moral intuitions, right? I mean, that's the key piece. And and I think in your article, you say say that you're not going to make a judgment about that. Now, you're not trying to defend one of these. Is it legitimacy? Yeah, I mean, of course, I I mean, is it probably clear from reading it? I I think Souter, I mean, I'm interested in Souter. I think Souter's Sort of this sort of unique one, and I still haven't quite explained how Souter makes use of this, which I can get to. Well, yeah, but that's what we're going to get to. This third one, yeah. but I, but I, but I recognize that the philosophical issues are so deep and so varied that I, I don't want to be claiming that I'm I'm defending it adequately. Although I am drawn to it in certain ways, it has huge problems and is a kind of I, I don't find it unproblematic. So I'm right now. I'm, I'm just trying to describe them, but I am sympath- more sympathetic to one than, than to the others. Christian, why do you call it legitimacy? That that the the intuition, the moral intuition you have in in reaction to uh, a confrontation with a certain set of particulars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, Christian, you use the word legitimacy, right? Right, because because what I think White is not just saying that people, in fact, do have these kinds of revulsions and, right. and define the moral principles that way, but that is, and we started here in this conversation, right? That, but then, in fact. That they is should. a legitimate way yes. for people to develop moral systems and to, ha- and right. to maintain morality, right? Whereas, whereas Dworkin That's may right. not deny that, in fact, people do reason in the way that we just described, but Hercules should not. Yeah, and it's interesting. I don't know enough about White to know whether he would say it's, it, it, it is legitimate or, or would, he, would he instead say, look, it's just a fact um, that we recognize about human beings is that we have these immediate reactions to things. That that strike us 
in full, like in full form, with full force. Like we have a gestalt, there's a gestalt reaction. That brings us back to the argument in Old Chief, right? About, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, is the fact that people in fact do behave this way, right? Something that we want to right. encourage? Is it the right way to think about things collectively? And, and Dworkin, I think, is rejecting that. He's, you know, right? I mean, right. we should aspire to be Hercules, someone who doesn't, you know, someone who, if, if, if you know, a moral intuition that you have right. maybe a, a, a hint, like maybe a breadcrumb that you can follow to realize that in fact there was incoherence in your moral theses and you can do a better job, right? Yeah. So it's a, right. It's a, what's interesting about it is that, you know, in that sense, White and, and, and uh, Quine, unlike Dworkin, both have a, a, a kind of pragmatic bent, it yes, seems. Right. Because they 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 don't make the move Christian just attributed to Dworkin about, you know, this might be the way things are, but it's not the way things should be. What you should be aiming for is this other thing. Right. Right. Um, And and they're not it doesn't seem like White is aiming for some other thing, nor is Quine or aiming for some other thing. By the way, a great pun opportunity went by earlier, and I have to there, I have to there, Is there it. such a thing? Is there such a thing? There is, uh, even though I'm not anyone's grandfather, um, there is a great pun opportunity. You said, Charles, two sides of the same coin, and you could have oh, said no, no, two sides of the same coin! No, no. Oh my god. He tried to stop <laughs> me, and he couldn't. <laughs> Charles, I love it. you were already doing a little uh, when Joe was talking, because you were hesitant about something. Now, you may want to just attack the pun. I don't know if you, you know. No, no, no. no, 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 no. There are now two things to assail here, I think. Uh, the, um, <laughs> I guess I would just say, I think, it's, I think it's uncontroversial to say that, you know, I think, that in a large, that ordinary people often do, as descriptive matter, reason in the way White describes. What is controversial I think I'm agreeing with you here, Christian, is that is that he seems to be saying that that's proper and that that's a that's OK and that's legitimate and rational. Right. It's kind of normative morality. Yeah. I mean, look, from one perspective, this is just exactly I mean, this is, you know, this is the worst kind of mo- what, what psychologists call motivated thinking. Right? This is having a conclusion and and adjusting your premises to reach your conclusion. It's like exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to you know, what's supposed to be rational. Well, it seems to me the vice, if it is a vice, uh, the vice comes from not being reflective about it. It's not from the fact that that's move number one. I mean, you could say it's just, there's just a Burkean sensibility um, that, you know, the fact that, that, uh, in, in the, that the culture has arrived at a point where I, as a member of it, have a certain initial reaction, that's information. Right. That's why I was wondering about your use of the word legitimacy. It seems to me the important thing about it is that it is informative. It, it, it is a source of information about the, your current web of beliefs, factual yep. and moral. And you can then you can reflect yeah. upon that. And what would be a poor thing to do would be not to reflect upon it at all, but simply act out of your your initial gut reaction. But it's what you do in that reflection that distinguishes Dworkin from um, from White here, I think. And. You know, yeah. so, and 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 Dworkin has a view of a proper kind of reflection, and White, I think, gives license to a much broader range of of things you could do in that reflection. But 
but maybe the best way to cash this out and to move to Suter, like, yeah, you know, we've, we've buried the lead in a way. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> we're an hour in. Well, but it's, it's like, how does, so, you know, maybe we want to do uh, Suter's explanation of plus C to Brown, or you can choose yeah. whatever you want, uh, mm. Charles. But, but so how does like a, a white inflected jurisprudence work here? Okay. So yeah. So then what I, what I, what I try to get then get to move from that idea to the common law where it's a relatively traditional, like much of the common law is, Kind of consistent with that, and of course, one of the things I've been interested in recently is just all the associations of, of common law, kind of ideology and and philosophical pragmatism, which were very much sort of came together in the early part of the 20th century. Um, but the the common law, the whole idea of the whole idea of the common law is very much like what we were describing, right? You you see the case, you you're, the case, uh, the judges base it on the particulars of the case. Um, they have a kind of intuition about what the right result is, and they adjust the rule accordingly to make it fit the facts. Um, and that's how the rules change over time, as by judges kind of modifying them in light of the particulars of the occasion. That that is kind of traditional. That's kind of traditional common law, you know, ideology or whatever. What I think is interesting about Souter and what he writes in some of these opinions is that he kind of takes that at a at a larger level. He kind of looks at um, uh, 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 how ideas have changed over time and makes a judgment about whether that was a a good reason for the change or a bad one. He looks at, in other words, kind of explanation. So in the case of Plessy, uh, the, from Plessy to Brown, he and what he talked about in that 2009 um, panel that you talked about, he sees it as a as a, basically a process of of moral progress of of through through experience through learning. You know, he says in in Plessy, we we don't have to judge them as kind of moral monsters because well, they had just lived through slavery. They were from a different time. They um, uh, they were, you know, so they were comparing segregation to slavery. So it was better than that. Uh, they, um, uh, there was all sorts of science, racist science saying that there was inferiority of races and so forth. They were a weak institution, I think, as you point out. Yes, exactly. And a weak institution, which of course is interesting because that's what he says in Seminole Tribe as yeah. a reason to kind of impeach that, um, that, that decision. By the time of Brown, the, the armed forces had been, uh, integrated, the science had changed. Uh, people had just lived more. There'd been, you know, there'd just been basically social progress. And so the court was in a different position. So he says he, they saw the facts differently. And he keeps on emphasizing, he always talks about this, about they saw the facts, the facts had changed. That's the language in, in, um, in, uh, in, in Casey. And if one of the things that I want to, I'm hoping to emphasize is that some people sometimes criticize Casey by saying, oh, that's a kind of naive view. The facts didn't change. The values changed. But of between you know Plessy and Brown, right? right it was right. moral change. That was social change. That was change in values. Not that the the facts had changed. One, you know, there was oppressive, you know, apartheid system at time A and time B. But that's a misunderstanding of what Souter is saying. For him, facts are kind of this perception of the facts, this morally laden, morally inflected understanding of the social meaning of these facts. He uses the language of meaning of facts in his Harvard speech. So that's this kind of connection. That's this. That's where the the, the connection between facts and values get kind of blurred in that way. And, and you give a kind of a, a modern example that that at least feels right to me. Like, how did people change their views about the morality of being gay? Oh, right. Right. It was like it was the exposure to like you know. So if if like if law is about like some collectively maintained principles that are in a certain amount of flux that we apply to to resolve disputes. 
Um, one of those principles has to do with kind of sexual morality, and that changes not because values change for reasons that we can't understand or just because of just working out a kind of coherence, but because a lot of people suddenly knew that they knew gay people mm-hmm. who they cared about very much. Mm-hmm. And it, in their mind, it kind of normalized it because the, the mistreatment of those people who they otherwise saw as regular, right, just like yep. them, other than – suddenly that, that, that is, seems like just morally, intuitively wrong. Yeah. Pragmatists emphasize experience, right, that that's how we learn. And you said to mention this earlier, Joe, about when we were talking about Quine – Yes, so Quine emphasized experience. He meant experience in terms of sensory observation. The the white suitor notion of experience is broader. It's it's a, the experience of of interacting with people and seeing that people who you you know just like you were saying that people who you know are gay are not you know alien to you anymore. That you you have a new kind of interaction with them. It's kind of your emotional experience, your moral intuitions about things. And so he views that as a kind of experience that can lead us to genuine learning. But and, and it blends together, or at least it doesn't care very much in the moment about the difference between the sort of the facticity of something or the morality of something. It's it's all part of your lived experience. That's right. As you're blending together and thinking, oh, yeah, that, you know, there might be this principle being gay is bad that's out there that I hear from a moralist. Right. But I know these individuals and they don't seem bad. Right. But I just learned they're gay. Maybe being gay isn't so bad. Right. You're sort of you're piecing you're you're unpiecing and repiecing back together the various components that are in your lived experience. Some of those components are general statements of abstract moral principles that you have heard from authority figures of various sorts. Other parts of your experience are how you how you feel and relate to these individuals who you've seen do good things and be good people. And then you sort of got to reweave it all as you go. And you're making meaning for yourself in that process really kind of throughout. I mean, in a way, it's kind of a semiotics. It's a sort of meaning. Meaning making is the important thing. Mm-hmm. As you reflect on the experiences you've had. I don't have a firm enough grip on, on, on what, sem, you know, what sort of semiotics means and entails. So I don't want to opine on that, but, but I agree with what you're saying. You can do uh, it on this show, Charles. This is, <laughs> this is a, this is a, a opining free zone, a opining uh, positive zone. Well, the, 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 but the interesting thing to me about the homosexuality thing is not just that it changed people's attitudes about homosexuals, um, and homosexuality, but that it changed people's understanding of the nature of homosexuality in that, um, and I will show this to my con law class because I think it's so interesting, is that attitudes or beliefs about whether homosexuality is a choice or not changes over the last, changes dramatically over the last couple decades. So that's, that's another example of just what we're talking about, right? It's because they no longer feel like it is a, something appropriate to, to, for moral blame and praise is appropriate because they don't want to blame people who they think are living a perfectly normal, proper lives. That then sort of retroactive, that sort of, you know, uh, changes their attitude about whether something is is innate or not, and therefore susceptible to moral judgment. And but that gets back to if a lot turns on the availability of choice, then you can get back to a more Dworkinian style view that there's an er principle here about not um, about not punishing people for things that they can't control, or you know, it's something about yeah. immutable characteristics. Whereas the 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 more the more kind of the the white approach. Um, and what you attribute to kind of the pseudo approach here would be to say that yeah, it's not it's not just that people reached that conclusion. Right. It, it's that um, 
it's they change their attitude about the morality of of being gay, regardless of choice, because of the confrontation with the fact about the fact of the suffering that it imposed to people that they cared about. That, discrim- that discrimination imposed. I, am I making? Does that make any sense, no, Joe, that, or not? Right. That might be right. I don't know. No, there's a third step we haven't. <laughs> there's a third step we haven't taken yet, which is to sort of, with Souter saying, okay, so what? What might I? How might I want to conduct myself as a judge? Right. Once I once I realize that one of the things that seems to crop up in experience is reevaluating moral principles as well as factual understanding. And it might make you more reticent to make sweeping moral decisions or make right. sweeping moral statements in any right. given case, right? Because right. You've, you've gotten, you've had this experience now of being really being changed by the particulars and reflecting on the particulars. Mm-hmm. So can you say more about that step? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, so that's sort of, that's where I sort of end up is that, is that he, because he puts more choice, Dworkin puts so much emphasis on principles and it's about equality or it's about liberty. It's about this and that. And, 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 uh, Souter, I think is more skeptical about the kind of, in a way, well, maybe it's not the right word to say the epistemic value of principles, but it's something about that he thinks the way people uh, reason, or at least the way judges properly reason, is more, much more on the ground, much more um, kind of case by case, uh, uh, sort of feeling your feeling your way to the right outcome based on 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 and and have sort of low level conclusions close to the ground. Then maybe in hindsight, with the perspective of hindsight, we might be able to see the principles after the fact. Uh, and so he's not skeptical like Posner is about the existence of principles. Posner thinks all talk of principles is just vague, you know, kind of hogwash. Um, but nor is he with with Dworkin that we ought to decide cases by by reference to principles. Rather, he kind of splits the difference and says, no, we ought to decide cases more feeling our way based on the particular facts, the way Posner uh, uh, sometimes suggests. But that's not to say that we can't then look back and see that we are, a, you know, a, a nation of laws or, or, you know, that we have uh, principles. It's just they're often only discernible kind of with their perspective of hindsight. I think the biggest example of uh, that we could use now in something that Souter is not faced with, not being on the court anymore, is what to do with the immigration cases coming up. Because oh, right? all immigration law, right, rests on this, frankly, racist foundation from the early 20th century. Um, and, and in the same way that people have come to know in the 1990s and early 2000s that, that people they know and love are gay, so too have immigrants been, found their way into the web of a community in ways that maybe a lot of people don't even realize. You know, there's these stories about the, um, the deportation of this well-loved grocer from somewhere in the Midwest. I forget the story now, right? Right. And it's like they it was a lot of the people were Trump supporters, but they didn't want their guy right. to be deported. Right. And the dreamer. The dreamer narrative is also um, the dreamer experience. Right. Right. And the narratives about that experience is also one that really super complicates being a off the cuff. Uh, oh, anti-immigrant. Right. Dad, right. Because right. wait a minute. If you're brought here as a young child and this is the only country you've ever known, how does that how does how do you blend that with your sort of a knee jerk anti immigrant response? Well, it's very hard to do. And there was a story just on Thursday. It seems so cruel about a, about a couple who had to take their kid to the hospital uh, for surgery, 
And because they had to go through a checkpoint, they, anyway, they were reported by a nurse and basically they were deported right after the surgery and they were in custody for the entirety of the surgery. But like in the border okay. patrol thought they were being compassionate because they were in custody in the hospital. They were basically being watched while in the hospital. So it's, it's like, it's revolting. Like it's, it's morally revolting in, in that like intuitionist way, right. Mm-hmm. That would cause people who don't already have the, the kind of the set of moral principles, which would which could be reasoned with to tell them that it is immoral might revise those principles based on mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know how, so the question is like, how does that process of, of intuitionist moral change, if that's what it is, how does that filter into to doctrine about, let's say, whether due process applies at the border, right, to people seeking visas, whether it, um, whether it applies to preventing um, uh, um, some kinds of deportations despite, you know, uh, what's in the law, whether it has any, any bite into the use of, uh, discretion, um, in, in deportation. I mean, I, I don't want to go into all of these things, but it does seem like the foundations of immigration law are, I don't know, at least under attack. That might be right. I mean, I think what I would say about, about Souter is, and this is, you know, the, the limitations of, of the paper and what I take to be his understanding of common law adjudication is that it wouldn't, it doesn't prescribe any, almost any um, kind of particular outcomes about, um, about cases because so much of it is about looking to the particular facts of each case and kind of going slow. I mean, this is what's interesting. If you watch that interview, if you're interested in, the, in the, some of these other sources that I drew on, did, uh, Joe, did you, have you seen any of the interview with Noah Feldman? I had not seen that, and I will watch that uh, because it seems interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's about an hour long. But I mean, Noah Feldman is just put, and he's a former clerk, um, of his, and he's just pushing him on this. And he keeps on basically saying, cause he's giving this, all this kind of stuff about a pragmatic approach and the, it's the kind of common law approach about looking to the facts and all this kind of thing. And Noah, uh, just keeps on pushing him saying, but, but there's gotta be kind of principles. You're you've gotta be going in a direction. You gotta have a criterion looking forward, uh, about how you decide cases. And he just, he just won't bite. I mean, he just says, no, that's not, uh, you never know. You can say that liberty is important, but at any given point, it might be that a countervailing value is going to be is going to trump it. This is this is the legal theory argument from yearning that is common, right? That they're just it's this it's this insistence that to a judge there has to be something underwriting this judgment other than just you, and the response is no, it's just me feeling you know, feeling my way out according to the way that other people feel their way out of... Which Posner seems to embrace. Fully embrace. Yes, right? yes, except he doesn't go that. He doesn't go the Posner. He doesn't just say, oh, it's just me. I'm just making stuff up. It's poly- no, Souter doesn't do that, but Posner definitely does that, right? Yeah, Posner definitely does, and increasingly so, I think. Um, so what... But, what, so what, but for Souter, it would be because he always sees there, there to be at least two or possibly more kind of competing values. Right. So it's always a delicate kind of like adjudication on those particular facts where the particular values were. I mean, to, just to just sort of close the final little step of what, what I what I think is interesting about Souter's approach is that, so he says that, and in a way you might think, and I think he would concede this, that those those kind of low-level intuitive judgments are, are going to, of course, just reflect, of course, they're going to reflect his particular values as a kind of New England, you know, 70-something white male, whatever. Of course, he wouldn't deny that. But in, in some sense, it reflects society, right? And of course, there are deep divisions in society about these things, so he doesn't deny that. But the point is, is that he sort of thinks judges ought to 
ought to just reflect social norms on some level. I mean, this is, of course, an old idea with the common law, is that the common law is about back to Cardozo and back to, you know, Cook and Hale and whatever, uh, that, that they ought to reflect basically the mores of the society. What, what I want to suggest that that um, that that Souter says one problem with that is that you might think that's kind of fatalistic or that it, it it gives you kind of no purchase whatsoever. This is again what what Feldman was getting at, right? It seems like that's just accepting whatever happens to be the conventional morality of the time as the only possible standard. And so there's no criterion of kind of evaluation to give you kind of distance from a critical distance. And what I want to say, what Souter's answer to that is is that there is a criterion, but it's historical. That it's about looking back and making a judgment that what that there was a distortion in the process. That you could critique current morality, but it would be from a perspective of hindsight. And it would be to say, you know what, something went wrong here in the process. We we took a wrong turn looking back because there's something about the process that we that we normally trust d- didn't go right. So the person in the best position to make the evaluative case about how the court performs in a given instance is a person in the future. Exactly. Not not them in the moment. Exactly. So now, maybe it would be that justice in the future looking back at, you know, right. two prior decisions and saying, oh, yeah, you know, if I were doing if I were doing that one again, right, right. I, I might maybe I would do it differently. Um, but that, but, that's what the common law does, right? Right. The, the common law always has a future judge looking back. So okay. there's always a there's always a looking back. But there, there isn't, as you say, because of the way time works. Right. There's yeah. not a future person deciding. Yeah. Right now. And that's yeah. what you know. So when you tell students, you know, you you really much more fully understand what proposition a case stands for when you read the next case that talks about it, not it. Well, this is what you say, Charles, okay. in the piece. You, you, yeah. you say you clerk for a judge who yeah. religiously struck out. We hold. That's from, right. From the opinions, which I thought was a nice. Uh, yeah, I thought yeah. that. I, I love that. I should ask him whether I could. I can quote him on that. Um, that's <laughs> right. That's right. It's always the so. It's in a way. It's just that idea, sort of writ large. It's that it's to, to future judges. Now, what's interesting is that, and this is what I think is unusual about Souter. What you said, Joe, is exactly right. Future judges are always doing that, and they're always revising their judgment. Oh, now we better understand. Now we have a truer understanding than what they did. They rarely go in though and try to explain away those earlier ones as somehow distorted. And that's what he, that's what Souter sometimes does. Like that's what he did in the Seminole tribe case where he says about this Hans, uh, Hans versus Louisiana case that was decided, decided in the 1890s in, in Louisiana, you know, uh, after reconstruction had ended, he said, he basically says that was a bad decision because the court was just concerned with its own political power. Uh, and so that's why we have reason to distrust it. And you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and the chief justice. He said, you're, he said you're not supposed to say that. Yeah. Yeah. He says this is, does a disgrace to our, our traditional methods of adjudication. Now, I wrote a whole paper on that case already. So in a way, I'm, I'm kind of double dipping here talking about <laughs> a Seminole tribe again. But I think it's fascinating because I think he does that. And that Casey is just the reverse of that. It's just a kind of, you know, a, a, a teacher I once had talked about, you know, debunking arguments and then bunking arguments. Right. If he's if he's debunking um, uh, Hans versus Louisiana, his analysis in Casey about Brown is a kind of bunking of Brown. It's a it's a way of bolstering it because of the historical process that happened between Plessy and Brown. It's very much looking at history as as, you know, looking at situations in which we can trust history and which we can't trust history, kind of making explanatory 
um, uh, explanatory judgments. And and in a way, it's I mean, you can uh, I could take anyone could take, I think, uh, a bunch of cheap shots uh, at at him. Uh, but but I think in a way he's he's sort of articulating something about, um, you know, how difficult it is to to be a judge and talk about judging in real time. That, yes. You know, he can make this case, he can make the comparison and the contrast between Plessy and Brown and make it in a very compelling way. But if you asked him, well, what would you have done? Yeah. Right. If you were on the court in Brown. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting. One thing that occurred to me after reading the paper, Charles, was, you know, he and, and I think Justice Ginsburg did the same thing subsequently. Right. But there's all this love for Harlan the Younger. In yeah, po- in Poe against Ullman. And it's so interesting. Oh, yeah. Harlan wasn't on the court in Brown. Right. So this guy who people hold up as a hero who talks about in Poe against Ullman, we should we should grasp the nettle and say Connecticut can't prohibit contraception uh, yeah. uh, for married couples. Right. Which they ultimately will reach in Griswold. That, well, we know how that story turned out. Like, of course, everyone thinks you shouldn't ban contraception, right? That's an, yes. e- that's an easy moral position to take because we sort of know how things turned out. Just so for Brown, and, and, and he wasn't, Harlan the Younger, taking a very conservative view of a lot of things, didn't have to wrestle with Brown. Yeah, yeah. He's there after it. Yeah. So it's this very interesting sort of approach avoid um I want to get the credit for the historical analysis and and saying Brown is right. Of course, we all think Brown was right. One thing you know about constitutional theory: if your theory can't give you Brown, it's wrong. Right. right. Um, but but also not being able to say, well, what would I do in the moment? I can't talk about the moment. I can only talk about the moment after the best predictions are predictions made in the past. Right. Yep. The predictions made in the future about the past. Um, right. It's a weird it's conundrum that he's in. in the future, I guess. But yeah, you just made a very white argument there. That well, if, if, a, your, if your theory can't give you brown, then it's wrong. No, no exactly. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. Right. It's it's accommodating the theory to fit the facts. Yeah. And, and that's I mean, in a way, that's right. the lesson of the Bork hearing. Like you, 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 you can't. We know these things about constitutional law today, and one of the things we knows is that that we know is that Brown was rightly decided. And right. if anything you say right. calls that predicate into question, you're 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 toast. Well, and I love. I, I did. It was sort of a fun little rhetorical thing that I, when I realized I could do it, when you know he gives in 2009 or whatever, he gives the speech to to the to um uh, to the Harvard graduates, sort of justifying this kind of evolving common law approach to constitution. And he basically asks as a rhetorical question, you know, and th- this approach led us to Brown. Like, so you know, is that is that wrong for the court to have done what it did in Brown? And he leaves it there because, of course, everyone thinks no, of course not. Just as you said, if there's anything we know, it's the most certain fact of all of constitutional law is that Brown was right. And that yet it's funny to just think about just 50 years earlier, Herbert Wexler was giving Oliver Wendell Holmes lecture, you know, almost the exact same spot saying he thought Brown was not wrongly decided necessarily, but certainly wrongly reasoned uh, and wasn't sure that it could be supported by sound adjudication. So it's like, and he was a, you know, liberal, you know, in the large scheme of things, kind of liberal progressive minded person. So it just goes to show, you know. I think you even say in the paper. I think, I think uh, Souter said something like, "You know the answer." Uh, oh right, yeah. Right. And then, and then, you know, and you contrast it with Wexler's speech where he's like, "No one knows the answer. I don't know the answer." Right, <laughs> right. And I, yeah, in another case that I, you know, I've written a paper about Shelley against Kramer um, as an example. That's another case that has, oh. like, it has to be right, and yet still, I think 
you know, people are trying to come up with the answer as to why it's right. Right. And that's also a very kind of white style approach, right? That, that, totally. that a, a, that people are striving to come up with the answer within, you know, are, are striving to come up with a, with a, maybe it's like Dworkinian style framework that will explain Shelley, knowing that until they do that, they don't have it right. Um, that way, anyway, there are two different ways of explaining how you would try to accommodate theory to, uh, mm-hmm. to come to a conclusion. So in the, for, for the future, because Charles, we've, we've enjoyed this, but of course we've taken up a lot of your time on, on a Friday afternoon to boot. Um, but in the future, I want to, I, I would love us to talk about judges who seem to cut much more of a, a kind of, um, a, a, a it's both a principled approach, so it sounds Dorkinian, but it's much more reckless and kind of wah and burn it all down, wah, kind of Jerome Frank, William O. Douglas, spasmo kind of approach. That's what I want to talk about next time we all gather together. Oh, yeah. Where's Douglas in this? That would be a great uh, I don't know. question. Well, I was yeah. going to say, I actually think I, I, I want to put Frank actually in the same tradition as, as Souter. He he in the way where where Souter looks to history, Frank has these kind of psychological explanations um, for 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 why people make the decisions they do. Uh, but he also kind of looks to particularized uh, judgments and sort of trusts the judicial hunch in certain ways. Mm. Um, so it's interesting. But I don't know about Douglas. D- Douglas may be an example of, and you've mentioned um, too that that. Um, even uh, like Posner trying to trace like which Posner are you talking about? Like the yeah. you know, Douglas yeah. is one of the justices, which reveals like the, the illusion of the consistency of, of a person over time, right? They're just different people over time who may right. change even in their basic theoretical commitments. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course I don't even, and that, uh, you know, and that, by the way, I would be curious if, if Joe, if there, any of the cases you mentioned at the beginning, you think are good evidence for any of the things I've said in my, in my article, I would love to get them because, you know, I only rely on about four or five of his cases. And I sort of say that in the beginning, it's, I'm really just sort of trying to sketch a model of what I, of a, of a view that I think is, he's articulated both uh, after his time on the court and uh, in those few cases, but I haven't claimed that, that his large body of jurisprudence is consistent with that. I think it probably is largely, but I haven't defended that. Well, four data points is two more than you need to draw a straight line. So... (laughs) I think I think you're you're right. you're solid. And one more than you need for a plane. So it's sort of like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I was thinking that as I was reading the paper and I don't have any firm view of that at the moment, but I will reflect more on it. Okay, great. Are we all out of gas? Wait, it's late on a Friday, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm, there's there's just so much more to think about. There is a lot. My my mind is racing at 100 miles an hour, but in a um uh maybe in the in the way that um, that we described Douglas a second ago, it's going in all different directions. Yeah. So indeed. it's it's probably a sign that it's time to stop. But I do want to reassure everyone, I've already forgiven Charles for comparing Jerome Frank to Justice Souter, who I love. You don't like Frank? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, as, a, as someone to look to for judicial reasoning, I think there's there it would be hard to give someone a worse example. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Maybe William O. Douglas would be the worst, the worst yeah, example. Okay, it's so Joe's very, very strong opinions about things. <laughs> I think give life to this show. I, I feel it, it's weird because you know I, I will make arguments and and sometimes maybe come off as strident, but um, I feel like are you I'm, saying in, in but in truth you really don't care about anything. It's not that I don't care. It's that maybe I'm m- more flexible and uh, and less certain than I might appear. Whereas you are every bit as certain, probably more so than you even appear. <laughs> 
Is that right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, hmm. Future me will opine on that. Well, thanks a bunch, Charles. This was great. Thank you guys for having me on again. It's great to chat with you as always.